Welcome to the North Country Wealth Management Podcast, where we discuss markets, investing, and the headlines that impact your finances. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any specific securities. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and all investing involves risk. The views expressed are those of North Country Wealth Management and do not necessarily reflect the views of Mutual Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Investment advisory services are offered through Mutual Advisors LLC, doing business as North Country Wealth Management, an SEC registered investment advisor. My guest for this segment of the podcast is Ian Monroe, the fund manager of the Etho Climate Leadership US ETF. Ian is the founder of Etho Capital, which was rated one of the world's most innovative companies by Fast Company for demonstrating the links between efficiency, sustainability, innovation, and financial outperformance for public equity investors. He holds a bachelor's and master's degree in earth systems from Stanford and is now a lecturer at his alma mater in Stanford's School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Science. Ian, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So Ian, you've built this fund, the Etho ETF, and this is what's known as a socially responsible investment. But a subcategory of socially responsible investing is something called ESG, uh, environmental, social, and governance. Help my audience understand um, what ESG investments are and where ETHO fits into the universe of socially responsible investing. Yeah, that's a great question, as there are a lot of acronyms out there. So ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Investing. And it's really become the most common term in what I would call the broader sustainable investing universe. And ESG investing has evolved out of what has been called socially responsible investing, or SRI for another acronym for you. And it started really with uh, primarily faith-based investors many decades ago who wanted to make sure that their investments were aligned with their social values. And so SRI investing really started focusing initially on just screening out potential bad actors that didn't align with the investors' core values. So for example, tobacco companies or weapons companies were common exclusions in SRI investing. ESG investing has really taken SRI investing a bit further, where still there's a mission generally to filter out the bad actors, but ESG investing is trying to go a step further and really focus on which companies are the leaders in terms of core value-aligned issues like environmental sustainability, social responsibility, and good corporate governance. So where Etho fits in is we are doing full ESG screening for all the companies that we evaluate when considering which companies will make it into our indexes and associated products like the Etho ETF. And we also are going beyond traditional ESG investing where we're not just looking at ESG data and SRI bad actor data and criteria, we also are taking this really deep dive into the climate change impacts of every company that we evaluate. Really importantly, including a deep dive into the climate impacts associated with every company's supply chain, which in many cases, these supply chain impacts 
are actually the largest impacts that a company has. For example, a, a company like Apple has very little climate impacts that go on directly in the company's facilities. It has, of course, electricity and has offices, its headquarters, that big spaceship building in Cupertino, for example. Uh, but most of the impacts are not Apple's own electricity use. They're all the impacts associated with all the raw materials and semi-finished products that go into making Apple's devices, its laptops, its phones, its Apple TVs, etc. And so with Etho, we're looking at the full climate picture of a company's impacts, and we're finding which companies have the least pollution for every dollar that's invested relative to their industry competitors. So we're finding the most climate efficient tech companies, the most climate efficient consumer products companies of different types, the most climate efficient utilities, airlines, healthcare companies, et cetera. And those companies then become the initial investable universe for ethos indexes and associated funds like the etho ETF. And then on top of this quantitative deep dive climate efficiency analysis, we are also doing the bad actor ESG and SRI screen. So if a company looks like a climate efficient company, but still has serious issues related to discrimination or poor corporate governance or other environmental pollution issues, for example, they still would be removed. So what ETHO does is this pretty unique mix of this deep dive climate analysis to find what we think are the most efficient, sustainable companies from a climate perspective, and then this overall ESG screening and bad actor removal process. So how that all comes together and the overall theory of change is that by focusing on finding who authentically are the most efficient and sustainable companies, we're not only creating products that are more authentically sustainable and in alignment with investors' values, but we are also creating products that are designed to invest in companies that just are more operationally efficient and probably better managed and from an overall risk return perspective, just better companies to invest in. So the overall mission for what Etho is doing is to really show that we can do diversified index investing in a better way that we can decarbonize across the economy, we can apply all the value alignment screens that investors are currently and increasingly saying they want to apply to their investments, create bottom-up indexes of the most efficient sustainable companies, and actually outperform what conventional benchmarks like S&P 500 are doing. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny you mentioned performance because, you know, we were pitched uh, ESG funds or socially responsible funds early on in my career back in the mid 2000s. And I look at the, you know, the, the historical data on these things, they were super expensive and their performance was really bad. Uh, but performance has actually been pretty good, uh, with ESG investments, uh, in the recent past. Uh, how have you guys been doing? So I, I should make the SEC happy and say past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Ah, With that said, you. You, can, you can, of course, uh, look at the Etho Climate Leadership Index and the Etho ETF and track them since they were launched in 2015, now more than five years ago. 
against S&P 500 and Russell 3000 and really any other U.S. benchmark you want to compare them with. And they are performing very well. They are not, of course, outperforming all the time on every day, but overall, their substantial performance advantages throughout most of the time windows you could look at uh, relative to the common benchmarks. And still, you see ETHO, the ETHO ETF and the associated index moving up and down with the market, as you would expect, as it's a broadly diversified U.S. index product. But in general, there's been substantial outperformance, particularly in times of market growth. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of the stellar performance from ESG funds in the recent past is likely due to excluding energy from their from their lineup. Is that a big explainer of Ethos outperformance relative to the S and P five hundred in the recent past? So. Etho is a fully fossil-free fund, and the underlying index is also, of course, fully fossil-free. And that is reflective of two philosophies we have. One, it's the right thing to do because the fossil fuel industry is one of the biggest contributors, in fact, the biggest contributor to causing climate change and all the associated problems we're already experiencing. But also, two, it appears that the economics and the technology for alternatives to fossil fuels and alternative technologies like electric vehicles that will reduce demand for fossil fuels has gotten to the point where renewable energy technologies, EV and other associated technologies, are just the best, cheapest options. And it's looking like the death knell of the fossil fuel industry is really going to come from comparative economics and technology change more than any sort of policy changes. So we do, we believe fossil fuels are a dying industry, so it's a bad place to be investing as well as a bad place to be investing from a value alignment standpoint. With that said, going back to your question, how much of Ethos performance is due to the fact that we're fully fossil free, it's actually not a huge part. Certainly, that has been a benefit for ETHO at different times. But ETHO is a broadly diversified index fund. So by taking out the fossil energy sector, we're still only talking about taking out around 5 max 7% or so of the overall investable universe for an index fund. And often we've actually seen that even when fossil fuel prices are increasing and fossil fuel equities are therefore gaining a bit in short-term value, ETHO has continued to do quite well, in many cases actually done even better, because fossil fuel prices rising are a good thing if you're an oil and gas company, but they're a bad thing for almost every other piece of the economy. Yeah, I find it really interesting that, you know, we're just wrapping up a presidential administration that was not friendly to the alternative energy sector, but they were friendly to the oil and gas sector. And in order for the uh, alternative energy sector to, to really take off, you would think you'd need higher oil prices, you know, to make those alternative energy uh, sources more competitive. But that's not what's going on right now. You've got record low fossil fuel prices, and that's a great thing for the consumer. 
Uh, but it's not a good thing for oil and gas companies. Um, they are not doing well. And you have oil or you have uh, wind and, and, and solar companies absolutely you know, skyrocketing right now. You know, what's the driving force behind that? So the driving force behind fossil fuel companies doing so poorly is just this downward death spiral of demand. So we saw this happen already in the coal industry, where coal was looking like, uh, well, certainly if you listen to proponents in the coal industry, the fuel that was going to be around for a long time. But very quickly, relative economics have effectively killed the coal industry in most parts of the world and driven previous giants like Peabody to bankruptcy, now about to probably go bankrupt for the second time in five years, because natural gas has been substantially cheaper with fracking technology. Also, renewable energy technology is getting even cheaper, even faster. So now the reason that you're seeing the solar industry exploding and the wind industry continuing to ramp up is just the relative energy price of generating electricity from solar versus wind is continuing to get better and better for favoring those industries to grow. So solar is getting cheaper every year still. Wind is getting cheaper every year still at pretty astounding rates. Some of that's from technology improvements. Some of that's from just economies of scale. And so in many parts of the world, it's simply the best, cheapest option to produce solar electricity and or wind electricity relative to continuing to run a natural gas plant and certainly relative to continuing to run a coal plant. When you factor in any sort of subsidies, of course, those relative economics look even better. And when you factor in penalizing and putting prices on pollution for coal and natural gas, then, of course, the relative economics look even better in the, in the favor of renewables. So it really all comes down to relative economics, where there's this massive shift in who is effectively the, the better, cheaper option. And that shift should only continue in the, in the direction of renewables. And then, of course, oil is really right now vulnerable to this massive electrification of our transportation industry that seems like it's starting to ramp up. And if you look at the price of lithium-ion batteries, there's been a very similar decline in cost to what we've seen with the renewables industries. So lithium-ion batteries are getting cheaper and cheaper. Most analysts now from places like Bloomberg are projecting that sometime within the next now three years, with zero subsidies, electric vehicles are just going to be the best, cheapest option for every new car buyer. And already, energy efficiency mandates and uh, just generally a shift towards less driving in most places has been putting downward pressure on demand for oil. Uh, I think we're only going to see that continue to accelerate with now many, many countries and subnational jurisdictions like here in the state of California, they're actually putting out policies that are banning internal combustion vehicle engines. And so sometime by the end of the decade, there's a lot of places where you just won't be able to buy a gasoline or diesel fueled vehicle. And so 
the markets are waking up to this reality. Of course, if you believe the forecasts that the energy companies put out there, and by energy, I mean fossil energy, of course, they're trying to sell a perspective to investors that there's still going to be a big market for oil in 10, 20, even 50 years. But if you look at the projections coming from the auto industry and anybody who's doing an honest assessment, it looks like a lot of the oil and gas industry is going to be effectively dead and bankrupt probably within the next decade, which we've already seen for the coal industry. And so that that is the basically the same reason that we're seeing solar ramping up and fossil energy prices declining is just that realization and these technology-driven changes. And of course, climate policies on top of these changes, penalizing polluters and incentivizing cleaner solutions will only accelerate these changes. But even with zero policy supports, this massive energy transition and decarbonization is happening and investors are waking up to that. Yeah, you can't uh, you can't fight the free market. Um, so, what what percentage of oil consumption is due to automobiles? Um, you know, if we're if we're three years away from that being more economical, boy, you can uh, you can see some significant progress on reducing our consumption of of uh, fossil fuels coming in the not too distant future. Do you happen to know that stat? I. I can't tell you that stat off the top of my head, but definitely the the vast majority of oil use goes to transportation in terms of both uh, light-duty automobiles, heavy-duty trucking and shipping, and then aviation, of course, fits in there as well. There is, of course, some oil that also goes to making plastics and things that probably will continue to be around for a while. But as you've probably seen, there also has been a big push, including by investors against single-use plastics and lots of bio-based plastic alternatives that effectively take away the need for oil to be part of the equation. And so there have been some in the oil industry that are trying to pitch to investors, hey, yes, we're going to have this big drop in demand as transportation uh, decarbonizes and electrifies, but we still are going to have this big demand that'll keep being out there for more and more plastics. But that also doesn't actually seem to be the case. Again, when you look at the different policy mandates and different technology changes, certainly I don't think plastics are going away entirely, but the drop in demand that's going to happen from transportation electrification is going to be way more than can be overcome from any sales just to plastics and other petrochemical type products. So, Transportation is going to be a, a game changer uh, for the oil and gas industry, um, and <laughs> it's a good thing from a climate perspective. It's not a good thing if you're continuing to invest in conventional fossil fuel companies, which unfortunately anybody who's doing broad-based index investing, whether they're aware of it or not, is as every conventional index benchmark continues to include a large slice of our dying fossil energy industry simply through virtue of inertia, essentially. Of course, because it's dying, it is becoming a lesser and lesser component every single day. Uh, so whereas in, I, I think it was back in the nineties or actually in the two thousands, uh, it was the largest sector in the S and P 500. 
uh, that is not even close to the case today. Yeah, and you're seeing energy companies left and right drop out of the S&P 500. And really, I think sometime soon, we're going to need to redefine the whole energy sector. Is If we continue to just define energy as fossil energy, it will make very little sense. <laughs> um, yeah, agreed. Um, you know, solar companies or wind companies aren't considered energy companies. Is, aren't they categorized as uh, industrials? Is that what you said? In many cases, yes. Yeah, solar and wind companies are categorized either as industrials or technology companies, which is why when you look at the sector distribution of the ETHO US index and ETHO ETF, it has a bit more weight to industrials and technology than the S&P 500 and Russell 3000 uh, because we do have more renewable energy companies in there, relatively speaking, even though we're not definitely not a clean tech fund. That's still a very small slice of the overall portfolio. But because the energy industry, sorry, the energy sector is still just defined as fossil fuels for the time being, at least, uh, that means that Etho has zero exposure in the energy sector since we have zero fossil fuel companies. And we also take our definition of fossil free a bit further than some, where we also exclude companies whose primary business is facilitating the fossil fuel industry. So companies like Halliburton, Schlumberger, Transocean, Valero that do fossil fuel refining or direct gasoline sales, pipelines, uh, offshore drilling, etc., we remove all those companies as well. Whereas some funds that claim to be climate-focused, low-carbon, fossil-free, still keep in all those fossil fuel infrastructure companies. Hmm. Yeah, how does how does your fund compare to some of the bigger players in uh, the ESG space? I'm thinking of like BlackRock and Vanguard. Both have uh, uh, ESG indices that you can invest in. Um, how is your fund different from those? So the good news is that sustainable investing, ESG investing, climate investing, whatever you want to call it, is increasingly just becoming the mainstream way that uh, most investors are saying they want to invest. Now, if you look at polls from places like Morgan Stanley, over 70% of investors now say they want something equivalent to ESG investing that aligns with their values. Uh, millennials and Others in younger generations are even further ahead in this demand. And most most polls I've seen, something like 85 to even 90% of millennials are saying they want ESG sustainability incorporated into their investments. So, of course, because investors are increasingly saying that they want this, almost everybody who's making investment funds now is saying that they're doing ESG investing or climate investing in some way, shape, or form. It is really important to still look beyond the label at what's actually in any particular ESG or climate strategy, as it can be pretty shocking that, for example, in a fossil fuel-free strategy, you still have a a lot of fossil fuel companies, which is the case with some of the, the larger players entering the space. And what makes us different from what those larger players that now claim to be doing ESG are doing is we're we're really doing our index and product creation from the bottom up, where we create a broadly diversified index 
based on a mix of the most climate efficient sustainable companies in essentially every sector of the economy, with the exception of companies whose core businesses we think just don't align with core ESG values. So for example, a fossil fuel company could never be considered a climate efficient company because its core products are causing climate change. And we would never invest in a tobacco company because of the just core health concerns associated with the industry. With that said, what the larger players do is basically a reverse process. They're not doing a bottom-up index creation to find the most sustainable companies and create an index based on those most sustainable companies. They're instead doing a top-down removal process, starting with a conventional benchmark like the S&P 500, or if it's a global fund, the MSCI, All Country, All World Index, or ACWI for another acronym. And so they're taking this existing index and they're generally trying to remove as few companies as possible because they're really concerned with what's called tracking error, the amount that that new portfolio uh, differs from the, the original benchmark index portfolio performance. And in many cases, the large institutional investors have these tracking error mandates where they're effectively supposed to manage in a way that's as aligned as possible with what their conventional benchmarks are doing, even as they're in theory also supposed to be taking into account climate and other ESG criteria. So if you look at the more, unfortunately, commonly available climate and ESG strategies that are out there, they're pretty underwhelming when you start scratching the surface. They essentially are just taking a a common benchmark like S&P 500, they're subtracting as few companies as possible. And in most cases, that also means that they're only doing one thing thematically. So for example, they may be claiming to be fossil fuel free, and they're taking out some of the largest obvious fossil fuel holders, still including fossil fuel infrastructure companies, and then not applying any other ESG screens. So they may still invest in weapons companies, tobacco companies, etc. So that's a much more, we would say, very ESG light. You could argue it's a more, uh, you can argue that it's a marginally better product that ultimately is created than the conventional benchmark as a few really objectionable things have been taken out. But for most investors who are actually concerned about climate change solutions and overall environmental, social, and governance, sustainability, and responsibility, if they look at the companies that actually are in those funds, they'll be, in many cases, pretty horrified about what they're investing in with this label that really doesn't reflect what the actual holdings are. So we're doing this very bottom-up, deep dive sustainability analysis driven process, whereas the larger players generally are doing this top down, take out as little as possible and put a a green, clean label on it and hope that investors don't really look that much deeper process. Ian Monroe, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time to educate my audience, not only on ESG investing, uh, but especially the nuances of your fund. I think it's a great idea and I wish you the best of luck in the future. Yeah, thanks again for having me and happy to come back anytime. It's it's been a 
an interesting journey coming into this, and there's a lot more we need to do to really move capital out of problems and into solutions. But the exciting thing that we're helping show with Etho is that really investors can align their values with still the kind of diversified index performance that increasingly they're looking for at a relatively low management fee as well and have a compelling piece of the solution to decarbonize and value align our entire economy and have that aligned with our portfolio. So I'm I'm excited about what we're doing. I'm really excited about doing a lot more of it in a lot of different places, and I'm happy to come back and talk more about it anytime. All right. Well, thanks, Ian. Take care. You too. 